Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm not Amber McKinney. Yeah. Who is out this week? <laughs> I'm Bill Donahue. And as always, I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Good God, that's Bro Say's music! We have another episode of Bro Say for you folks. We managed to not burn down the studio last time, and I guess that's like the standard, because they're letting us... Amber's letting us do this again. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't take too much from the fact that they've let us do this again. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I can't imagine they'd be thrilled with the, the show <laughs> we have planned. Yeah, uh, a lot of interesting stuff going on, but you wanted to talk about... Well, for, I mean, I just think it has to be mentioned at the up top. We talk about a lot of different areas of law. One area we almost never talk about, family law. Yeah, I would say if there are any divorce attorneys or attorneys uh, who handle proceedings like that. Well, quick shout out to my dad, yeah. who's an uh, attorney who does family law. His name also also Bill Donahue, correct? Yes, yeah, yes. correct. Okay. Uh, but so we got to talk about Jeff Bezos is getting a Getting it's a divorce. Sure, he's getting a divorce. Uh, and a lot of people learned today about uh, his, I mean, he's. there's all sorts of indiscretions that are in the press. That's Dirty texts and stuff. N- not as important, but the point is, um, I learned this today, he got married in 1993, mm-hmm. which is the same year he had the idea mm-hmm. for an online bookstore called Amazon. Yeah, yeah. All I, of this is- I wonder if it's done well since then. Yeah, it's. Uh, he's doing okay for himself, but the point is, the way we're talking about this today is because mm-hmm. we learned uh, in the press today, he does not have a prenup. No prenup. One of the world's richest men, 10, 12 richest men, whatever you want to say. Right. Uh, no prenup. 130 plus billion dollar might net be, worth. Might be going down in the coming months. So funny enough, I was texting with my dad a little while ago. Okay. Like, does that just straight up mean that that, that it half and half? Yeah. And like, you know, there's complications. It's state to state. There's all sorts of other things. But like, generally speaking, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I know, I, I again, I just because I was reading when he met his wife and when they got married, he was like working at a hedge fund. So he was like a normal-ish rich guy at that uh-huh. time, but he just, they didn't have a prenup. Right. And now, you know, it's going to get a lot more exciting for him. Have you ever seen um, Have you ever seen the movie Intolerable Cruelty? I have not. It's lesser Coen brothers. Uh-huh. Always ranks at the bottom of their list. I have a soft spot for it, though. And there, there's um, George Clooney has the famous, like, he's a, he's a divorce lawyer and he has like, right. a famous prenup. Uh, that is like renowned in circles of divorce lawyers. Uh-huh. It's called the Massey prenup, and uh, I'm sure Bezos wishes he had one of those right <laughs> now. But uh, yeah, well, we could talk about Jeff, our man Jeff, all day. But uh, yes. I think we got to get to the show. Um, our main segment this week is going to be um, we have uh, Elizabeth Goitein on from NYU's uh, Brennan Center for Justice to talk about. President Trump's uh, repeated threats to declare a national emergency in order to build the the wall at the southern border. The so, wall, legal, illegal? Just stay tuned. It'll be an, it'll be an interesting chat. Um, yeah. And at the end of the show, we're going to be talking about a uh, a big law attorney who got sort of dragged by a federal judge for including Animal House references in a um, in a filing in in a Mueller prosecution, which. Look, everybody loves a good reference to a to a comedy. I mean, what what would be more bro say than than a, a you know making an Animal House uh, right exactly uh, but, thing? You can't do that to our big law partners. Only we can do that to our big law partners. Maybe not the time. No, maybe not the time. De- definitely not. But before we get to all that, we have uh, I think a few pretty interesting news stories. The the most pressing of which is the story that. Uh, the the federal shutdown. The government remains shut down. Government no mas. And I think a lot of our listeners, we're all thinking about it. Is what you know how this sort of impacts the federal court system. Mm-hmm. So to walk us through some of that, we have a special early guest on the show, um, senior reporter Jimmy Hoover, calling in from our DC bureau. Thanks for joining us, Jimmy. Hey, thanks for having me on. 
Jimmy, let's just get right into the nitty-gritty of it. What is the most current state of play? A lot of moving targets here and different stuff going on. What is the what is the current status of the funding of the federal courts? Do they have money over there? Do they Are they running out? What is the deal? So as of now, uh, Thursday, which is about 20 days into the government shutdown, the court system is currently in full swing thanks to the use of court fees and other funds that the judiciary is able to use that isn't really dependent on a congressional appropriation. Mm-hmm. So the courthouse doors are still open for all intents and purposes, although there has been you know, a limited impact on certain uh, litigation. And there's th- you know, things involving federal prosecutors we've seen be slowed down a little bit, that they, they've been asking for extensions and stuff like that. But it sounds like it's, for the most part, it's still running sort of up to speed. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the, the court system at this point has been able to use those reserve funds that I was talking about. Yeah. And they've currently estimated that they're going to be able to continue to use them until they run out, which is uh, on January 18th is when the budget folks say that's going to happen, uh, at which point it will kind of switch into a more uh, dire situation for the well, courts. Well, that immediately prompts our next question, which is, you know, what, what happens at that point? Say doomsday scenario, say this this keeps going for, for weeks. Trump has said it could go for years. I don't know if that's true, but... Uh, what happens if we get to that point where the, the the current sort of allotment has run out? Yeah, so in that scenario, the the court system will kind of begin operating like a lot of these already shut down federal agencies operate, which means that they're going to have to furlough certain employees whom they de- deem non-essential um, to their constitutional duties, and then they'll ask the essential ones to stay on uh, without pay. So it's really going to affect the bottom lines uh, of a lot of these uh, court employees. Uh, but at the same time, there's a lot of questions over you know, things like juror pay. How do you uh, convince jurors to stay on for a trial if you can't guarantee them the you know, uh, federal allotment that they currently do? Uh, there are potential ramifications for you know, uh, scheduling certain litigation um, and things of that nature. Is there like a standard sort of blueprint for how the courts are supposed to make those decisions about who's essential and who's not and how to handle the cases? Or is it like each court is sort of its own, you know, king of the king of its own castle there? How does that work? That's exactly right. Each court is going to have to make the tough decisions about you know, staffing and litigation and just their general policies um, as they operate uh, during the shutdown. Um, I, I suppose that comes from the judiciary's belief that, you know, each jurisdiction is in the best position to decide, you know, mm-hmm. what is essential and what's not. So have, have courts, you know, in your reporting, have you run into any situation, like, is there any interesting stories for, like, how courts are planning on dealing with this, this possible scenario where, like, you know, do they do they triage certain cases? Do you have a sense of, of how they would handle that? Yeah. So from my understanding, this is these are discussions that are happening in you know federal courts across the country. Uh, I spoke to a court official from the Southern District of New York today who told me that yes, they are currently you know debating what decision types of decisions that are going to be made in terms of staffing, but even other things like you know keeping the lights on if they can't uh, afford to if the contractors aren't being paid to to run the building, for instance, uh, they said that they're going to begin testing a system uh, that was originally designed for a pandemic scenario (laughs) in which they take uh, criminal presentments via, you know, video conference and things like that. So they're really running through all the scenarios here. And, uh, you know, it's still very much uh, a live question as to how these courts are going to handle a complete uh, lack of money. 
All right, Jimmy. Well, uh, we're, we're all sort of, I'm sure a lot of listeners are hoping we don't get to that point, but um, thanks for, for keeping us up to date on what's going on. Yeah, anytime. For our next story this week, we are staying in D.C. and staying on the federal judiciary. Yeah. We're going back to one of our favorite subjects from a few months back, our man Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. um, Sort of, I mean, it's an interesting sort of like news person obligation here. It's like I never want to skate past the fact in case anyone could have possibly forgotten he was credibly accused of sexual assault. Um, but this week we got a look, our first look as his very him, first, his very first opinion as a Supreme Court jurist. And it was kind um, of, kind of a, you know, I think in a normal week, maybe we wouldn't cover this story. Yeah, it, uh, it's a tad dry, but because it's his first one and it, there was so much It sort of interest. showed, you know, it showed what, like, it showed that he is sort of sticking to what, what, how he was billed. Yeah. You know? Well, let's talk about the case. Um. Uh, it has to do with arbitration. Uh, walk us through it. Yeah, so it was a case called Henry Schein v. Archer and White. Um, dealt with a thing we've talked a lot about with the Supreme Court, the issue of arbitration. Mm-hmm. Um, more specifically, and perhaps more less interestingly. Yeah, uh, <laughs> like, more interestingly. <laughs> uh, it dealt with whether courts, rather than an arbitrator themselves, um, has the power to decide whether certain cases should go to arbitration. It's kind of like like arbitration inception. Arbitration here. inception. Yeah. It's an important thing, though. Like, I mean, because we, we, we've talked about the disparity between court proceedings and arbitration proceedings, but getting, like, you know, delineating who decides where it ends up is very important. It is arguably the most boring thing. It's like the ratio <laughs> of boring to most important might be highest in, in, yeah. in, our, in when it comes to the issue of arbitration. Yes. But anyway, so a lower court uh, applied this doctrine that other courts have sort of formulated in the past that says, while arbitrators should decide whether a dispute falls within the arbitration clause, a court can nevertheless reject a party's request to compel arbitration if if the the argument for arbitration was um, quote wholly groundless. Right. They the court can reach in and say, and say this look, is, this, this is, is too not, ridiculous, not proper yeah. for arbitration. Exactly. So. Kavanaugh wrote the ruling on it, uh, looking at the text of the the Federal Arbitration Act, and um, he threw out that that doctrine and he overturned the lower court. The the sort of power quote was, the Federal Arbitration Act does not contain a wholly groundless exception, and we are not at liberty to rewrite the statute passed by Congress and signed by the president. So so you got uh, so he's a judge who. Uh Hates judges or hates uh, court proceedings, apparently. Um, but you said like it, it was very indicative of his sort of like the book on cat <laughs> his his worldview and, and and what everybody was talking about when he got nominated. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I, like. I think the 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 most on point Kavanaugh would be like something about administrative proceedings or deference or yeah, some of that stuff, yeah, like yeah. dealing with agencies. But mm-hmm. but this is like right along the lines same kind of what, idea of what we thought we were getting when we got Kavanaugh. That it's this textualist um, a, approach. Um, it, you know, he reverted to the mean, like the plain meaning of what the statute said when when Congress wrote it, um, and it showed. On the flip side, it showed sort of his complementary skepticism of policy arguments mm-hmm. of, um, you know, the idea that that practicalities or real world concerns should come into come into play. At one point in the opinion, he directly rejected this argument that 
um, you know, that the courts should be able to reject these groundless arbitration requests because it would save time or it would save money. He basically said, like, I'm not allowed to look at that, that this is Congress passed the law and it didn't have this in it. So I don't know. I don't I can't help you here. You sent me a piece of the transcript and it really reminded me. Well, of no, like... that, so that was a different case. I oh, thought okay, you were yeah, gonna, yeah. I thought you were going to bring that up. <laughs> but it's interesting because, um, you know, just to put just a little bit of background, I was covering another case where it was oral arguments. It was sort of an obscure copyright case, but it was Kavanaugh asking questions and he was needling someone about policy arguments. Okay, yeah, see, this is why I got confused because you just sent me a quote and it could have easily been about this because he was talking about practicality and real world implications and stuff. It really felt like... Um, so like you say, it's a different case, but it really felt like when you have like a like a debate with somebody in a bar, except in this case, like it like the person has authority over you and he's like probably going to rule against you. Well, and they say that a lot with Supreme Court arguments that yeah. a lot of times when they're asking people questions, they're asking them to figure out how to rule against them, exactly. <laughs> like how yeah. to sort of ensure that they're, you know, that they're not screwing things up by. Mm-hmm. So it seems like that was what he was doing. He wanted to know these policy yeah. ramifications so that he could reject them. But. Um, so interesting first ruling from from Brett. We yep. will be keeping an eye on it. I think it takes it's we need a bigger sample size than probably than one opinion to know really what kind of jurist he's going to be. But um, it's a start for for our man Brett. For our next story, I wanted to talk about some of the interesting legal ramifications from um, something that is um, a straight up crisis that you may well have forgotten about, given all the other things that are going on. In the world, and I'm talking about the Flint water crisis. You haven't heard about it in a while. No, um, and if in case you forgot or maybe never quite tracked what happened there, um, officials in the city of Flint, Michigan, um, basically decided in 2014 to switch the town's water supply from Lake Huron to the Flint River. And the mm-hmm. Flint River was, at the time, thought to be commonly understood to be filled with, you know, chemicals from the factories that had been there and very corrosive water. Right. When the water came through the city's um, lead-lined pipes, the corrosive water ate at the lead and it got into the city's water supply, contaminated the water supply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people con- contracted serious illnesses. Several people died. Um, and then, of course, there were allegations of government officials actively trying to hide the fact that right. they knew about that, that, that something like this might happen covering their tracks. As you can imagine, this blossomed into um, a bevy of legal challenges. Yeah, um, There's all kinds of stuff that's working their way through the courts. There's a huge class action that's pending uh, sort of in stasis at district court. But we're talking about today is a sort of smaller scale um, claim brought by just a handful of Flint residents. Mm-hmm. And they got a favorable ruling at the Sixth Circuit this week. Uh, the Sixth Circuit basically ruled that um, a number of Flint city officials who were named in the suit uh, could not be uh, um, considered immune. They had tried to say that because we're government officials, we're regulators operating in in good faith, we should get qualified immunity and you shouldn't be able to sue us. But so super briefly, what what did the lawsuit say? Like, how are they suing? The lawsuit, basically, it's a constitutional claim. And they are saying that they have a right to bodily integrity Mm -hmm. in the 14th Amendment, which, of course, has to do with equal protection. Mm -hmm. The... um, Right of bodily integrity is something that has a long line of Supreme Court and uh, Supreme Court jurisprudence. And the idea is like, well, if you, a public official, did something that caused me to get cancer or get Legionnaires' disease yeah. and die, you should be held accountable. But for so, that. so uh, these officials were saying that they were immune, but obviously, as you said, the Sixth Circuit um, ruled against them. And and from what I've seen from the coverage, it was a pretty uh, scathing ruling, right? Yeah. I mean, that's really the story here. Um, It's very important, uh, you know, to have 
um, a federal appeals court on record saying, yes, you actually can sue these officials. These cases mm-hmm. can go forward. Um, but they didn't just say, yes, they can go forward. Uh, uh, Judge Richard Griffin, who wrote for the majority, wrote, Involuntarily subjecting non-consenting individuals to foreign substances with no known therapeutic value, often under false pretenses and with deceptive practices hiding the nature of the interference, is a classic example of invading the core of the bodily integrity protection. If there was ever an egregious violation of the right to bodily integrity, this is the case. Wow. Um, yeah, spared no quarter there. Um, the, uh, the panel then moved on. Um, focusing specifically on there's different defendants and they are alleged to have done different things, but mm-hmm. they moved specifically to um, the officials who were alleged to have known what was happening and like yeah. actively tried to cover it up. Uh, again, the majority writes their actions shock our conscience. It is alleged that these defendants acted with deliberate indifference to the plaintiff's constitutional right to bodily integrity and at a minimum were plainly incompetent. Wow. So there was a dissent that said that the, the, the majority reached too far, and you can see how somebody would think yeah. that, but they, they spared no quarter um, for these officials. Um, again, th- there's a, a lot of uh, different cases that are in the pipeline here. This is a huge win for these plaintiffs, though. This is now, like I say, a, an appeals court that says you can bring these cases against these local government officials. So definitely one to keep watching. President Trump again on Thursday threatened to declare a national emergency in order to build a wall along the southern border, which lawmakers have thus far refused to fund. As we've asked so many times during the Trump presidency, can he do that? Here to help answer that question is Elizabeth Goitine, the co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at New York University's Brennan Center for Justice and the author of a recent study on the president's emergency powers. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks very much. Good to be here. So just to sort of set the stage, you know, I, I, I laid down a little bit of what has been happening with the president in the last few weeks, but... Sort of, could you could you walk us through, um, you know, what kind of powers the president can assume when when he declares a national emergency? I don't think most people quite understand how sort of big and sprawling this this you know sort of legal background is. Sure, I mean it's not quite as big and sprawling as he seems to make it sound because he definitely uh, seems to imply that if he declares a national emergency, he can then do whatever he wants. And <laughs> that is definitely not the case. Um, but that said, there are some exceptionally powerful authorities that do become available to him uh, under these circumstances. And this is all governed by the National Emergencies Act, which Congress passed in 1976. The act uh, allows the president to declare a national emergency, which he can do uh, pretty much uh, in his discretion. There are no uh, requirements that have to be met. There's no showing that has to be made. He just needs to write it down, sign his name to it, and and there's a national emergency. Um, at that point, he gains access to these enhanced authorities that are contained in more than 100 different laws that wow. have been passed by Congress over several decades. And they kind of address the whole, uh, you know, the whole arena of government action, pretty much anything you can think of in government, there is an emergency power that that relates to it. Um, That said, you know, some of them are 
you know, pretty narrow, uh, pretty tailored to uh, circumstances that you might actually be able to imagine. Things like laws that allow the use of experimental uh, medications without FDA approval it, during a during a pandemic, during a public health crisis, things like that. Um, and you know, honestly, some of them are are so kind of mundane as to as to seem just trivial. It's just hard to understand how they'd be useful in any circumstance, yeah. let alone in an emergency. <laughs> but uh, but that's you know, there are a few, a handful. Well, let's of talk powers. Yeah, let's yeah, l- 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 let's talk about them a little bit, just because um, I know mm-hmm. that, like like you say, this this broad national emergency authority is now codified in many different laws. So, in the context of the debate we're having now about security on the southern border, what types of provisions could he cite, and what sort of powers could he allocate for himself to address what he perceives as this crisis? Yeah, well, well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, there are these some very powerful authorities in this, you know, long list of laws, including, you know, authorities to shut down communications facilities and to freeze Americans' bank accounts and to, to uh, uh, you know, c- control exports on a massive scale and yeah. things like that. But it's not at all clear that there's the authority to build the wall. Right. Um, and there are a couple of laws that seem, you know, on point if you sort of skim them. And these are laws that allow the Secretary of Defense to move money around within the Department of Defense during mm-hmm. a national emergency. Uh, there's the one law that allows uh, the Secretary to use uh, unobligated funds for military construction projects. And there's another that allows him to divert funds from Army Civil Works projects. Uh, but if you delve a little bit closer into these laws, if you look more closely at them, mm-hmm. um, they, have, they have certain requirements, certain language, certain definitions that really make them, I think, uh, not really applicable in this circumstance. Um, so the one about milita- military construction projects, the construction projects have to be in support of a use of the armed forces that is required by that national emergency. Okay. And so essentially what that means is if there's an emergency where that requires the use of the armed forces, military construction projects can be undertaken in support of that use of the armed forces. Right. In this case, it would be literally the opposite. It would be mm-hmm. the armed forces being used in support of a military construction project. Um, not to mention the fact that the definition of military construction in the, uh, in the uh, statute strongly suggests that what Congress had in mind was military facilities being so, built to support military deployments. So, you know, we, we can sort of talk about what is in these laws, but I think it's interesting to talk about what will like what will happen if if he invokes this and sort of the process of of, you know, these obviously would be ch- the this this kind of move would be challenged in court. Um, to, I mean, do you have any sense of of under these sort of it's it, you know it seems like it's sort of murky uh what do, i mean is there is there a sense of whether or not these would um be you know be blocked um in in federal court mm-hmm. so i think there are um, some pretty convincing legal arguments that that these that the authorities he might rely on are not on point that there really aren't any emergency authorities directly on point for what he wants to do and therefore you know, I think you'd probably find judges ruling on both sides of this, but you would probably get, I think, at least one judge um, who would not only uh, probably side with the with the litigants, but would uh, be willing to enter an injunction to prohibit the the or to you know at least defer the building of the wall while the litigation goes forward. 
the other- and so I don't think the I think even if he declares a national emergency, the wall doesn't get built you know, for years. The other thing we wanted to talk about in this context is beyond the sheer legality and the viability of a court challenge to whatever might happen, we're asking you to hit a moving target here a little bit because we're <laughs> saying like, what what might he cite? Then what might he do? Then what might a challenge look right. like? But I think a sense of context is important because um, presidents have declared national emergencies before using various statutes. Um, can we talk about exactly how that process normally goes and how it differs from what Trump is kind of angling to do in this context? Yeah, well, I think for the most part, uh, you know, declarations, emergencies that have been declared in the past, national emergencies, and there have been many of them. I mean, since 1976, which is when the National Emergencies Act was passed, there have been 58 uh, declarations hmm. of, of national emergency. 31 of those are still in effect yes. today. Uh, but so I, the majority of them, the vast majority, were issued um, as a way of imposing economic sanctions yes. against foreign actors. Mm-hmm. And uh, under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, or IEPA. And uh, so, and I think that uh, if, you, if you think you know, fairly strictly about what ought to qualify as an emergency, and you think of an emergency as not only something that's, you know, really bad, but also something that was unforeseen, um, that is a sharp departure from the norm. Mm -hmm. Um, And also in the context of emergency powers, it should be something that is unfolding so quickly that Congress doesn't have time right. to and, react. And because, y- mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the, the sanctions question is interesting for this point, and I, I, I cover sanctions from time to time uh, uh, in my work here. And the difference there, of course, is that Congress has delegated to the executive branch the authority to impose sanctions. Like They are sort of in lockstep on that as a policy point. I think what me and Bill were actually talking about before you hopped on the phone was this idea of declaring an emergency and trying to allocate uh, you know, and trying to allocate resources for something that Congress has not explicitly approved, a, a, a la building well, a wall on the southern border. Yeah, well, I'll get back to that in a second, but I don't want to leave the the IEPA context so quickly sure. because I don't want to. I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily agree that this that that this is exactly what Congress had in mind when it passed IEPA because under IEPA the president is supposed to determine that there is an unusual and extraordinary threat mm-hmm. that is being posed. And so it really is meant to be an emergency power, not just sort of a regular sanctions power, because yeah. that also can be done through Congress, right? Mm-hmm. So the, it was meant to be sort of a stopgap measure, a temporary measure for, for true emergencies. It has not really been used that way. It's been used as an instrument of foreign policy. Yes. Right? It's been used to, to impose sanctions on people we don't like. And, you know, generally people who are doing very bad things. And for that reason, nobody gets upset about it. Congress doesn't get upset about it. Everybody's fine with the end result, which is that the sanctions happen. But it's happening under an emergency framework when it probably shouldn't be. Right. So I, I, I want to. I just want to. I, I have to put out there that really the majority of emergency declarations in place today don't actually relate to real emergencies. Uh, if you're gonna, if you're, if you're gonna be strict about right. it. Right. But, it, but so you is, raised is, an excellent point, which is that in in this case, the president is threatening to use emergency powers to get around the express will of Congress. Yeah, that's, that's 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 what we wanted to hit on, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a different ball of wax. And I will say, I think that has happened before. Um, in 1983, there uh, there was a law that uh, Congress did not renew a law that gave the Department of Commerce 
uh, the authority to impose controls on certain exports. And the administration really wanted to impose those controls. And when Congress said, well, we're not going to renew that authority, um, President Reagan declared a national emergency based on the failure to renew the authority and continued the export controls under IEPA. Yeah, right. So that was really that was really using an emergency power to get around uh, Congress um, in a in a somewhat similar way. So where does that leave us with this calculus on the wall? I mean, there's this is moving fast. Trump is on the is, is at the border as we speak with you today <laughs> on Thursday, saying he's he, he's thought about it. He's maybe not ready to you know declare a national emergency, which raises questions about. I mean, how can it really be emergent if you're like thinking about whether or not it's an emergency? Where does that like how do you see this playing out here in the next, you know, couple of weeks? <laughs> I mean, I would say that I have absolutely no ability to predict what this president does under any circumstances. <laughs> I think that I did I did publish an article about national emergencies like two weeks before he started talking about national <laughs> right. emergencies. So apparently, I guess I have some. I don't know. I I you know, he he needs a way out of the budget shutdown. Right. He needs a way out of this corner that he has painted himself into. I think if he finds a different way, he will take it because I, I think um, he is getting the, the trial balloon of the national emergency that he has floated out there is not going so well. Do you think this maybe, sure maybe puts a little bit of the focus, you know, focus on we, we've talked about sort of this this existence of all these emergency powers. I don't think many people know about this. I mean, does this sort of highlight a system that that has been in place and has sort of, uh, you know, chugged along and and now sort of we're all starting to realize that it's there? Absolutely. I mean, it's a system that has lacked checks and balances and guardrails. But, you know, the, the guardrails are in place to keep to keep things from going horribly off course. And when things are not going off course, when they're going fine, you don't really see the need for guardrails. And so you wouldn't necessarily notice if they were absent, right? You notice that when things start going wrong and when things start going badly. And that's when you realize, hey, wait a minute, maybe we actually needed some checks and balances in these emergency powers all along. Excellent. Well, Elizabeth, uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show to chat about this. Thanks very much for having me. We always like to end the show with something offbeat, and uh, I think Alex has something something I, I don't even I haven't really even glanced at what it is, so I'm excited to hear about it. Well, we're back on the Mueller tip, uh, the Mueller investigation, uh, and the litigation that has flown from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week, uh, a D.C. federal judge said uh, she was fed up with a uh, with a Reed Smith partner's tactic of using movie references. In his uh, in his in his court briefs to criticize special counsel Robert Mueller. Now look, you and I, I I, I knew we'd talk about this. Yes, we 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 bring in a lot of movie references. Uh, I think a joke once was that uh, if Amber left us alone in the in the booth, it would just be the two of us making movie references the whole show. And I I mean I've tried this is like I've tried to take steps in my personal life to like not do this. Like it annoys my wife, it annoys my friends. Like The wedding was wonderful, but Alex kept made maybe one too many Mrs. Doubtfire references. Well, um, I mean I got right up there and said mowage <laughs> right in front of everybody. It was it was it was totally inappropriate. Um anyway, the attorney in question here, uh uh-huh. the the movie fan attorney uh is Reed Smith's Eric Dubelier, who uh is representing a consulting group 
um, that Mueller has accused of funding a Russian conspiracy to sway public opinion. They were the they were the money allegedly like the sort of money outfit behind this sort of army of online trolls and like social sure, media sure. like you know campaigns. Um, Dubalier is representing them, and they've been going back and forth ever since uh, they were named uh, in a Mueller indictment. And in a recent brief, um, Dubalier likened Mueller's conduct to that of a character in the 1978 comedy Animal House. Um, he wrote, the special counsel's argument is reminiscent of Otter's famous line, Flounder, you can't spend your whole life worrying about your mistakes. You f***ed up. You trusted us. Wait, did he put did he put a, a curse word in the brief? <laughs> he used stars okay. to censor out the profanity, uh, much like Steve will. Um, but uh, and it's not the first time either. Uh-huh. Um, else, like earlier in this in this line of litigation, he's quoted Looney Tunes <laughs> and Casablanca in other briefs. Always, always in the in the frame of taking shots at Mueller. So he's apparently decided. Uh, that this what's is the weird, way. What's weird is that this is this is a Reed Smith attorney. Like it's not exactly. I it's not that too. some schmo from a from a no name law firm. When like I you'd think someone would be like, hey man, maybe don't do that. Well, someone did, and it was Judge Dabney Friedrich uh, at the great, DC. Federal great name, court. by the way. Great name. Um, uh, on Monday, she let she she really let him have it. After this filing that that made the Animal House reference, she said, "I'll say it plainly and simply. Knock it off." <laughs> I thought your brief was inappropriate and unprofessional and ineffective. You have undermined your credibility in this courthouse. So, I Yikes. mean, a, a lot of people, a lot of the, the legal press just kind of parachuted in on this on this thing. But this has apparently been brewing for a while because judge, the judge is just like, knock it off. Um, then they went back and forth. It was really wild, at least to read about it. Uh, Dubalier basically said he accused her of bias. Uh, and and that, that was an allegation that she rejected. What is uh, going on? And that, yeah, yeah. Did yeah. this guy have a stroke before the? Like, what is he doing? I don't know. Um. Anyway, then she, she, she basically said, like, no, I'm not biased. You're just inappropriate. And then he said, Your Honor, that's your opinion. Oh. Which is a hilarious thing to say to a judge. And also, I might add, a missed opportunity for a classic Big Lebowski quote, which I've <laughs> always wanted to hear a lawyer say to a judge, which is, Yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man. Like <laughs> he was so close. He was so close. Uh, I'd like to point out that I'm just thrilled that that we were able to wrap up this segment about the inappropriateness of movie references with a really good movie reference. I think I think we should quit while we're ahead before we suck ourselves down into the uh, into the swamp even further. All right, man. Well, this was a good uh, it was a good bro say. I'd say it's one of our best. Although I I, frankly I miss Amber. I Um, do too. We always do. Uh, We look forward to having her back next week. Uh, and we would be remiss if we didn't throw yet another plug for uh, for our exciting live show. That's oh, when yeah. That's going to be back. Um, we've said it a couple times, but in case you forgot, that is Wednesday, January 16th at 11 a.m. at the Midtown Hilton here in uh, Manhattan. And I think we haven't been super clear in the past, but um, you know, even if you're not going to the to the conference where the, the, the live show is taking place, you can come on out and see the show. There is, there's going to be preferential seating for the people who are, you know, attending the conference, but... You don't need to be you don't need to be a full week attendee to uh, come out and check out the show. Yeah, you don't have to be a member of the New York State Bar Association to go here. We've gotten some questions to that effect. Even the commoners, the lay people, uh, we we love you guys too. If you can make it, if you're in town, we'd love to see you. All right, that'll do it for this week's show. As always, we have many people to thank, including our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week Jimmy Hoover and Elizabeth Goitin, and our contributing reporter Emily Field. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. 
If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we discussed today, check out our website at law360.com slash podcast. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you like it, please leave us a review. It really, really helps for people to find the show. Thanks, and join us again next week.